Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of Martin Chemnitz and Caridian, Ministry, Word, and Sacrament. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, today we pick up a wonderful text from the 16th century. And I don't normally do this with our authors, and I'm only going to do it very briefly, but just wanted to give you a little bit of information about the setting of this text, uh, historically speaking. This was written by Martin Chemnitz, who, of course, is frequently known as the Second Martin. He famously is an author of, or the primary author of a number of our confessional documents, especially those that occur later in the Reformation, the formula of Concord being chief. And he, uh, as a pastor and superintendent, which would be maybe something analogous to a district president today, though not really one-to-one, went out on a series of visits. This used to be more common. It was called a visitation. And so he went around Braunschweig and visited the churches, and what he found there was a disaster. This is not at all uncommon at the time of the Reformation. Luther himself went on a visitation and found such disastrous circumstances. He thought, I have to write a small and large catechism so that the pastors can be taught and the people can be taught, in some cases, despite the pastors. So, not unlike that occurrence, Chemnitz goes on this visitation in 1568, and of course he's appalled And in 1569, he pens the Incaridian. And we're going to see in his own words, in a preface that he himself wrote, what his intention is with this document. Um, The Formula of Concord is written some nine years later in 1577. And, of course, the Book of Concord finalized and approved in 1580. So that gives you a little bit of sense for where we are in the timeline of the 16th century and the Reformation and Chemnitz's role. Um, Of course, Chemnitz also, after the death of Martin Luther and after the proclamations of the Council of Trent, which was the Roman Catholic Council that condemned the Lutheran Reformation and all the radical reformers as well, which we would agree with in that condemnation, the Lutheran response to that fell on the shoulders of Martin Chemnitz, the author of the Enchiridion, and he wrote the examination of the Council of Trent, which is translated for us into a four-volume set, and it's excellent. It's sometimes said that Lutherans invented patristics, and I think that's more than just a joke. It's There's a truth to it. You can see this in the Book of Concord, and you can see this also in the examination of the Council of Trent. That Lutherans are always want to teach, this is what the, or to show and demonstrate that this is what the scriptures teach, this is what the church fathers 
teach. This is what we teach. And so all three of those things together, and we're going to see examples of that even as we get into the text of the Enchiridion today. We're going to say, well, well, why does that matter? Why does that historical reference matter to this theologian or that council? Precisely because the Lutheran way of theology is always showing how this teaching is taught in the Word of God, in the history of the Church, in the Orthodox Church Fathers, and then also in our teachings as well. So this use of the Church Fathers is why it's sometimes said that Lutherans invented patristics, because we line up the statements of the Church Fathers with the Scriptures and say, yeah, that's us. We're not a sect We don't desire to be or create some brand new church. We want to be the church of the West with correct theology. It's all we've ever wanted to be and all we continue to want to be. So, very, very refreshing. By way of introduction, then, uh, turn to page 15 in your text. And if you run into any pagination issues, let me know. I don't presume there will be any, but... We may be surprised. Chemnitz himself was born in 1522 and died in 1586. And this preface is found in a 1593 edition, so quite a bit later, but was probably penned with the original. If you're looking at page 15, we'll skip around just a little bit, but at what would technically be the third paragraph, it begins, Reverend in God venerable, pious, and very learned men, honorable lords, and dearly beloved brothers in Christ. Now, isn't that interesting? Because I think this is a side of the coin we don't often look at. We look at the polemical nature and the sometimes toxic, from our standpoint, nature of 16th century theological writings and addresses, and maybe we'll see it, get a little bit of a taste of that, But look at the other side of the coin. Look how friendly and pious this address is. The highest uh, reverend in God, venerable pious, and very learned men, honorable lords. Who speaks that way these days? No one, and it's a pity. We should. So there are two sides of the coin, extreme praise and extreme denunciation. He continues, The highest favor that can come from heaven to any province, city, or people is this. When God kindles and causes to arise the light of his saving word, by whose splendor all darkness of errors, abuses, superstitions, and idolatrous worship are put to flight, and hearts are enlightened by the true and salutary knowledge of God. What a beautiful statement. And this is a reminder for us to pray for our own city and province, as it were, that God would grant and bestow this highest favor of sending his word to dwell richly and effectively in our midst. Chemnitz continues, for scripture calls it the accepted time, the day of salvation, a blessed people and a blessed land then what is cited are a number of scriptures. And just a brief note on that, since we're in the very preliminary stage of our study. As you read through the prefatory information, you'll find that the editor, in many cases, is the one who has put these uh, biblical 
references into the text. And by and large, it's not going to be, I'm going to trust that you have the text in front of you, and so I'm just verbally going to skip over those, assuming if you're really curious, you'll look down and take note. And uh, it's also going to be kind of my modus operandi in this class, not to look up every single text for support. We can, if one is of interest, please feel free to bring it up, or if I, if I feel like one is specifically pertinent or, a- pertinent or answers a controversy we're dealing with today or something, I may. But otherwise, generally not. That's no disrespect, obviously, to the text. That's just, if we looked up every single reference and went into it, we would never finish this text. We'd be doing it for a decade. Okay, with that out of the way, continuing with Chemnitz. And it praises this treasure as more excellent than any purest gold and most precious stones. For it is the only and ordinary means whereby the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and keeps a true Christian church on earth. Boy, where did Chemnitz get that language? Catechism. Yeah, the small catechism. And wonderfully stated again that the word, the saving word of God, is the only and ordinary means whereby the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens, and keeps a true Christian church on earth. Chemnitz continues, which church in this life rejoices and delights in a gracious and merciful God and in the life to come in eternal blessedness. Since Chemnitz lays that beautiful foundation of the Word of God and God's blessing of a given place and a given time by letting the Word dwell and abide there richly and effectively, I think it only is befitting for us to do the same. Now, skipping ahead somewhat to where he gets down to the purpose for which he has written this text, we'll go over to page 16. And on page 16, we'll go to the second full paragraph on that page, about halfway down. Chemnitz writes, And since God instituted the ministry for this reason, you can infer from even what we read before for what reason, that is the pure preaching of the word, And uses it to this end, that the body of Christ, that is his church, might be built and ever grow unto the edifying of itself. They that are in the ministry must, with all concern, diligence, and faithfulness, be God's co-laborers, plant and water. And there I will mention the reference of 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. That is precisely... uh, the, the language there in 1 Corinthians 3 of co-laborers is the language of sin ergos, from which we would maybe mistranslate synergist. But here uh, in the scriptures, the, those who have the pastoral office in, specifically are co- in specific are called co-laborers or workers with the Lord. For the purpose that, continue with Chemnitz, the word of God might dwell among us richly in all wisdom, and all manner of tares of false erroneous doctrine be rooted up and kept away from these churches by the grace of God. 
All right, at this point where he says um, God instituted the ministry for this reason, that brings to mind, not only has Chemnitz been quoting from the small catechism, kind of the foundational document of our home and the piety of our homes, but he is also alluding here to the Augsburg Confession, which is the foundational confession in the Book of Concord that I previously mentioned. This Augsburg Confession, try to find it here, Article 4 and 5 is what Chemnitz is alluding to. And these are shorter articles, so I want to read them to you so you can see the connection and see this foundational way of understanding Lutheran theology. So foundational, and really Christian theology, so foundational that Article 1 is simply on the doctrine of God, And it's not a disputed article. It's an agreement with everything the Western Church has taught. The second is original sin. You can see how that flows from our alienation from this good and holy God on account of our sins and that sin that remains in us. Then God's answer comes immediately in the third article, which is on the Son of God. This is what God has done to save the good creation that has become corrupted by sin, namely sending his son to take all that corruption upon himself and put it away forever, that we might be restored unto this good and gracious God now and for all eternity. Okay? That takes us then to Article 4, Justification. And here's the one I want to read to you. It is also sometimes thought to be the, and I think rightly so, the foundational article of the Reformation, Lutheran Reformation. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strengths, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven For Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. Immediately following is Article 5. Now listen to this. We've just heard about saving faith. Listen to Article 5. So that we may obtain this faith... The ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was instituted. Through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given. He works faith when and where it pleases God, in those who hear the good news, that God justifies those who believe that they are received into grace for Christ's sake. This happens not through our own merits, but for Christ's sake. Our churches condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that through their own preparations and works, the Holy Spirit comes to them without the external word. The main point here that I want you to see and that Chemnitz is drawing on is that foundational to the gospel itself, in a secondary way, though, is the office of the holy ministry. If the gospel 
is the goods, then the office of the ministry is to take and distribute those goods to the people. And thus, the office of the ministry and the gospel go hand in hand and are the foundation by which we receive that faith which saves. And thus, you can see that hinted at here at page 16, where Chemnitz says, Writes and since God instituted the ministry for this reason and uses it to this end that the body of Christ, that is his church, might be built and ever grow unto the edifying of itself, they that are in the ministry must, with all concern, diligence, and faithfulness, be God's co laborers, plant and water, that the word of God might dwell among us richly in all wisdom and all manner of tares of false erroneous doctrine be rooted up and kept away from these churches by the grace of God. All right, I'm hoping, and I'm suspecting that for most of you in this room, I'm hoping for any who might be watching online, that this is familiar ground and a well-worn path. We're all largely aware of these things. Let me pause and see if there are any questions or comments, and it's, of course, more than fine if you're taken off guard or surprised by these things. That's fine, too. We all have to learn. We're all continually engaged in that learning process. Please. Um, I was going to mention or ask for an expansion on this uh, expression that says um, the ministry, Article 5, the ministry was created uh, basically to distribute this good news and give faith the question is now where it pleases God. Yes. Uh, that sounds like it's not in all places, but we know in other scripture that God intends that all would come to him. So yeah. Now, the, the deepest mystery here that we should just come right out and state is this question, um, why some and not others? That's the short form. And the Lutheran answer is, is that there is a mystery there. We can speak of that mystery, but we can't speak definitively. We can say certain truths, but we can't speak definitively. Why some are saved and not others. In fact, to put the Lutheran position as simply as we can and draw out the paradox or the the two sides of the same coin. By the way, as a bit of a tangent, this is how all Christian theology works. It's how every article of the Christian faith works. If you don't understand how it's seemingly contradictory, if you don't understand how there's two sides of the coin, then you probably don't yet grasp the fullness of that article. You can take, for example, our Christology. You might easily trot out that God is, or that Christ is true God and true man. But the rub comes down, and let me just give you an example, a simple statement like this from the scriptures. He grew in wisdom and in stature. So he grew in wisdom. Now, put this against your knowledge that he is God, and if you need to go find a proof text where it talks about all wisdom is within him or the fullness of the deity dwells within him bodily, you can do that. But right there, you've got a mystery. Your brain is probably having a small little train wreck inside of it. How can he simultaneously know all things and yet grow in knowledge? All we can do is say that this is what the scriptures say, but there's a mystery there. 
And the art of Christian theology is not solving all the mysteries, rationalizing it so it all makes sense. The art of Christian theology is learning to listen to what God says and then speaking what he says, going no further and not falling short of. Okay? So then, in the same way, we can look at the question of why some and not others, and we can put forward two biblical truths. The first is gratia universalis, universal grace, or as you quoted, Barry, that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, if God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and he's the one that does it, why aren't all saved? That's a question of our fallen reason. God, and to be straightforward, God doesn't give that answer. Now, there are two groups within Christianity that try to give rational answers to that. And let me hit those very briefly. Calvinism, or double predestination, is the position, and has the position, that it is in fact not the case that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, but before the foundation of the world, God has predestined some to hell and some to heaven. Those who are predestined to hell are just out of luck. So they end up denying gratia universalis. They end up denying that statement of scripture that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, what is the alternative rational explanation? This isn't a very complex equation. If it's not on God, then it must be on man. Here is the position of Jacob Arminius and in a sense traces back all the way um, through the semi-Pelagians back to Pelagius himself, whom St. Augustine dealt with. But it is in one way, shape, or form that the determining factor of salvation or damnation lies not in God, but in the individual person. So you have to accept God and then you're saved, or you reject God, and you're damned. So salvation then, through this subtle way of thinking, is not dependent upon God at all, in fact, but entirely dependent on whether or not you choose God. Because if God has done all things equally for all people, and the reason you're in heaven and Jones is in hell is because you chose Jesus and Jones did not choose Jesus, then salvation is dependent upon who? You. You've probably heard this kind of analogy, like God writes you a check for a billion dollars. You know? <laughs> all you have to do is sign your name to it. Um, all you have to do is sign your name. Just sign your name to the check. Well, then what determines whether or not that's yours? Not the money, not the check, you signing your name or not. And so all salvation becomes dependent upon your choice or your decision. Now, what's the biblical problem with that? The biblical problem is Jesus turns to his disciples in the Gospel of John and said, you did not choose me, <laughs> I chose you. And we see all manner of statements throughout the scriptures 
speaking of faith as a gift. That we are justified by grace through faith, and this not of our own doing. I'm quoting Galatians, or wait, what am I quoting? If, is it Ephesians 2, thank you. I don't know what happened. Let me have a little sip of coffee. Yeah, Ephesians 2, 8. So, even the faith is not of ourselves. Now, this idea that faith is not of ourselves, it's not a matter of free will decision, it's something given to us by God. We don't choose him, he chooses us. We can take all of these verses and summarize them under a similar little Latin phrase, uh, sola gratia, grace alone. So we know the scriptures teach grace alone. It's not anything in humanity by which man saves himself. We also know the scriptures teach gratia universalis, universal grace, that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's at this moment where reason recoils and goes, well, why then aren't all saved? Or why are some saved and not others? And again, the scriptures do not spell that out for us. So along with Augustine and all the faithful church fathers going forward, we simply say, this is God's business and he has not revealed it to us. There's a mystery there. All that's being articulated in that statement, Barry, in in the confessions that um, through the word and sacraments, as through instruments, the Holy Spirit is given. He works faith when and where it pleases God is just simply a way of articulating why it is that every time um, we preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit doesn't immediately enlighten the hearts and minds of who we're talking to and either create faith, ex nihilo, as it were, create light out of darkness, or strengthen faith, or convince, or lead to repentance, or grant the assurance of forgiveness. What does that word run up against? And there are two sides of that coin in which we may speak. The resistance of man, or, as articulated here, that the word is effective only when and where it pleases God to be effective. If you wanted to do a biblical meditation on that, you might look at uh, Moses with Pharaoh, where Moses is speaking the word of God and Pharaoh is hardening his heart and then ultimately it is said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. That would be a meditation on this theme of how the word of God is ineffective and in what ways and for what purposes and for what reasons. But I can pretty much nonetheless assure you that after that meditation, you're not going to have this great, big, brilliant light bulb moment where you go, aha, now I and I alone in the history of the church know why some are saved and not others. So we're not going to go, even though it sort of relieves some maybe rationalistic tension in our minds, we're not going to go with Calvinists because we're not going to deny that God desires all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We're not going to go with the Arminians or the decision, free will type people, because we know that faith is a gift and we did not choose Christ, he chose us. And so we'd rather live in a, in a little bit of rational tension 
and keep the word of God and say it's a mystery to us, as are all articles of the Christian faith, than we would to solve that mystery, remove that mystery, but find ourselves positioned squarely against the word of God in one way or another. Make sense? Okay. I see a hand uh, up here, and I'm sorry if that was too long-winded, but it's almost impossible to answer that question without going into it. Yeah, without getting you on a longer, long-winded thing. Thank why, you. Why don't, why don't we, um, I, this is a, the wrong way to say it, but why don't we give Satan more credit than, than what you're giving him? He's a powerful force. Yes. It, and uh, it's, a, it's an evil force, and he is battling like crazy to screw things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he's more involved than... I, I heard you giving him credit for for uh, yeah, and it's said in the scriptures to blind the hearts. Absolutely, of men. I mean, and so yes, I, that is an ingredient in the mix. Um, when you add that ingredient into the mix of the conversation I just had, it doesn't have a super large impact on that particular conversation because ultimately God is at minimum permitting him to blind, sure. right? So it doesn't have a material effect in that argument. But your point is still very well taken that when we're looking at the whole sum of biblical teaching, I mean, think of Christ's parable that's very much on why it is that the word doesn't always work. Do you know what parable that is? The sower. Exactly right. The sower. And really you have, I mean, to oversimplify the very first reason given is that the birds come and snatch it away. And Satan says, or Jesus says that that's Satan who's coming and snatching it away. So in our Lord's own teaching to his disciples of why the word is not always effective in terms of how we see things, uh, Satan is given that uh, dubious yeah, credit. Mm-hmm. Please. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, this is something that I've always liked about Lutheranism is that we're willing to say we don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of distrust people, religions, whatever, that have all the answers. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. It's a good point. It's a good point. Well, and there's something at the heart of that. I mean, it's not just like, oh, Lutherans love paradox or, oh, God loves paradox or something like that. I, all that's a completely wrong way of looking at it. To your point, Gordon, is God chooses in every article of the faith to remain in one way, shape, or form incomprehensible. And we need to think about that word comprehensible and comprehend. To comprehend something is to wrap yourself around it. Um, If you were to comprehend God, God would cease to be God and you would be God a fundamental axiomatic truth. So then in everything that God says and does toward us, we're not ever going to be able to fully comprehend him. Um, If we did succeed in that, then he would no longer be God. We would be. So that's part of the innate and subtle idolatry that permeates the theological approach of many, many you are trying what you end up doing is trying to comprehend God asserting that you've done so and in so doing you've completely lost the plot 
and you've completely fallen into idolatry. So that's why at the heart of every article of the faith, we see that God says one thing and says another, and we can't wrap our minds around or comprehend the wholeness of it. That's because we can't wrap our minds around the wholeness of God. And so every article of the faith has within it that creator-creature dynamic inherent in it. And so thank you very much for that comment, Gordon. It's, yeah, and it just leads me to, again, like this is a feature, not a bug. And it's not a unique Lutheran thing either. This is thoroughgoing in the Christian faith. Um, and it's, by the way, why mystery is used so prevalently in the scriptures. There are, count, like if you just look at the New Testament scriptures, specifically here, the Pauline epistles, the way he uses mystery, the referent to that is multifold. I mean, one could never guess quite how many different mysteries are being referred to there because sometimes they're quite large topics. You know, the mystery of election, for example, holds a whole nexus of doctrines within it. Please. Exactly what you were saying. That's what I was thinking, too. I mean, we're trying to use our fallen reason to something out perfectly like God. And that will just never be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not, Ex- not in this world. Exactly. And I think there you can understand why in this Article 5, um, and every, every positive statement of faith is a denial of false statements, but at the very end it says, our churches condemn the Anabaptists and others who think that through their own preparations and works the Holy Spirit comes to them without the external word. That's, that's just simply the counterpart of sola scriptura and the counterpart of this epistemological notion that the only thing we can truly know about God is going to be revealed by God himself in his word. And to seek means or modes outside of that is going to lead you astray, ultimately. Okay, so far so good. Let's uh, jump back in to page 16 with uh, Chemnitz's explanation now for why it is that he's written, uh, really rather, what, what the purpose of this text is. We left off in that second full paragraph on page 16, but we drop down about eight lines from the start. Chemnitz writes, For that reason, and in view of this, it is decreed in the Christian church order of our illustrious prince and ruler, Lord Julius, Duke of Brunswick and Lüneburg, that the examinations be held not only when someone is to be accepted and received into the church ministry, but that the superintendents twice a year examine the pastors assigned to their supervision so that it might at one and the same time be an indoctrination and instruction regarding the basis and true meaning of the pure doctrine and how less learned pastors might arrange their studies, guard against false doctrine, and set the doctrine before their hearers in plain and simple terms, so that through such examinations, the whole church, both preachers and hearers, might be edified under divine blessing with great profit and benefit. 
All right, keep a finger there because we're going to pick right back up in a moment. But what Chemnitz is asserting and is asserting is going to happen in his jurisdiction is that not only will new pastors face a theological examination, but all pastors sitting in office will receive two examinations per year. How wonderful that would be. If they were objectively administered. Lord have mercy, I would hate to see what the examinations are now. Like, do you know your login to the recent statistical analysis software? I mean, that would probably be what the question is now. Do you, can you name the four most important parts of church marketing? Can you name Rick Warren's number one methodology for church growth? Blah. I mean, that's probably how we would be examined today. Uh, so maybe I don't want this. But imagine a world in which you had the likes of Chemnitz writing the test and then making sure that not only your pastor but all other area pastors knew this, believed this, and taught this. What a beautiful blessing that would be. So what then, you can already kind of tell, what then is the purpose of this book? The purpose of this book is ultimately going to be almost a small catechism for pastors that's the first use, that they would read this in preparation for these twice-a-year examinations. But the second use is that this would be handed over to laity, and that laity would read this frequently so that they could know themselves whether their pastor was a knucklehead or not. That's the theological term. So that both laity and pastors, the church as a whole, are together understanding these foundational doctrines. Picking back up where we left off, where hopefully your fingertip is still residing, but in order that equality might be preserved in the examinations and the less learned be able, the better to prepare themselves for them, it was resolved in the church consistory. Quick note on that, a consistory was a governing body if I'm not mistaken, it consisted mostly of ordained, but also of some laity. And this would function again in a regional basis as a uh, truth-determining or judgment-rendering body. We don't have much like this. It's part of our problem, and I'll not launch off on this, one of my favorite soapbox, but the body of Christ, as it were, has very little immune system these days. That's our problem. We are immunocompromised and we have, it's not the presence of error, the presence of disease. I mean, right now in your body, you've got all kinds of bacteria and nonsense and on your skin, you've got all kinds of viruses and garbage, but you've got a functioning immune system. So here you are, fine. And that's precisely analogous with the church. The church in all times and all places has had errors and problems. And, but is there a functioning immune system? That's a critical question. Because if so, even though these things are present within the body, they're being addressed and dealt with, and the body remains healthy. But if the body becomes immunocompromised, these things run rampant, and then what help is there? None. Okay, so this is uh, one of the great advantages we see of the 16th century is that they have 
things like visitation and examination and a governing body like the consistory functioning immune systems where even analogous to real immune systems no doubt sometimes the consistory gets it wrong um, just as our immune systems do but better to have that than to have one not functioning at all so just picking up it's a lengthy sentence right in the middle it was resolved in the church consistory with the gracious previous knowledge and consent of our gracious prince and lord etc that the form of examination like that in the consistory used with those who are to be ordained and received into the church ministry be published in written form so that the superintendents might be able to follow it in the annual visitations so the superintendents either our circuit visitors or our district presidents, something equivalent to that, would go around and they would examine on the basis of the questions of this text and the answers given in this text. Um, of course, today we still have theological interviews as you go through seminary. And in fact, all of seminary, you have to pass the class, you have to write papers, you have to give talks, you have to do all kinds of stuff. And all the way along, your professors are evaluating you. And then at the end, any professor can stand up against your ordination and speak to why he thinks you ought not be approved by the seminary faculty for ordination. So that, in a sense, is the most substantive theological test there is. And of course, our seminary education is four years long, uh, one year consisting of a vicarage. And then after that, though, there is a formal theological interview where two professors sit there and they can ask you any question and you have to give your answer. Um, and then there are frequently psychological interviews and or, um, do they still do those, Vicar? All right, good. I wanted to make sure it wasn't just my class. That'd be a little unnerving. Uh, but there's psychological interviews. And, um, and then there's also... Um, there are some other checks and balances with the application process and the district process and even the way in which you're called. You're having you're at various stages before entering seminary and after graduating seminary before entering a parish, you're receiving the approval of district presidents along the way. Right? And in fact, all the district presidents themselves, and this is a little bit rubber stamped, but they do have to approve of you for and approve of the class for dissemination then into the office of the holy ministry so we do have a lot of checks and balances in terms of people coming into the ministry but we don't have a lot like once you're in the ministry so once you're in the ministry you know you can forget everything you were taught in about 15 minutes and uh, decide to do something entirely different and yeah uh, that may be a caricature but it's kind of also a problem yes uh, hand in the back right behind you So let's see. Uh, so Timonitz was instituting this at the church at his time, mm -hmm. and uh, the question is, at what point did it stop being used? But also within the LCMS, has this ever been used within the LCMS? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that as to whether this specific Enchiridion has been used in the LCMS. I don't know. What... What I can say, generally speaking, and you can tell this even in the name right now. So in our, in our polity, you have congregations, 
you have pastors of those congregations, and the area congregations comprise a circuit. Okay, might consist of eight to twelve, give or take, maybe more, maybe less uh, congregations. You have a circuit visitor there, who is who has the primary responsibility of oversight of those pastors and congregations. As you might be able to tell from the name, even though we just kind of coined this, it has to do with its origin. This was the way the LCMS did this by and large. Um, even if it wasn't the, in Caridian specifically, I don't know. But the circuit visitor would actually get this. Visit the congregations and would listen to the pastor's preaching and would find out if it was good or not. And by good, I mean orthodox. And would sit down with the pastor and talk with him would, and would have an examination. And this would take place sometimes more, sometimes less frequently. But that's how the same thing was happening uh, uh, in the LCMS in its early days and moving forward. Now, that still consists to one degree or another, depending upon which district and which circuit you're in and which part of the country you're in, in other words. But it has greatly diminished. And any sense that you might like find yourself in hot water because you decided to preach a sermon about your story to the your family trip to the Ozarks instead of the gospel, uh, you know any sense that you might get in trouble for that is long gone. Sadly, yeah. So does that kind of get to the get to the substance of your question? Okay. Yes, hand up here. I'm not very familiar with how pastors and other churches are trained. Any others have four-year seminary? I know in some, a man just decides he wants to be a pastor, and he raises money and starts a church. So who else has this thorough training like Lutheran? Yeah, I'm, not the, I'm certainly not an expert in this area, but what we would normally call the mainline denominations in America usually have some amount of substantive Training, substantive seminary, or the equivalency thereof. Um, I don't know the specifics of those systems. I don't know like how long you have to take or what the criteria are, or the academic, you know, qualifications you have to have, or anything specific like that. But it is more along the lines of sort of the fringe, non-denominational, and. Um, what kind of became emergent. You had all these sort of trendy church of what's happening now, what are you connected to, nobody, what do you believe, whatever that guy up front in the trendy glasses says we believe. Um, That whole thing uh, that kind of developed in the last couple decades really has no process, as you mentioned. It's just sort of like if the pastor looks cool enough that people will start to listen to him and he speaks in a catchy enough way that, I mean, itchy ears are being scratched and drawn all around and then if he kind of likes the skinny jeans on another guy and thinks that they might team up and have a even more robust and successfully a numerically successful ministry then they do this so yeah unfortunately that's what we see a lot of and i and i feel bad because for every one of those guys that quote unquote makes it and becomes a big shot usually you just have to wait about a decade or so on average until he has some grievous fall uh, but for every one of those guys, there's probably, you know, I have no idea, but my guess would be 
dozens, if not hundreds, of other ones that jump into the ministry, get themselves in giant hot water, and leave the ministry and maybe even leave the faith. It's kind of, I mean, I, I'm to the point where those individuals, I almost, I, in part I pity, and maybe not the skinny jeans guy who's full of himself, like you kind of get what you get, but the guy who just sort of like is led into it or stumbles into it, and it's like, hi, now all of a sudden I'm a pastor. Well, what training did you receive? None. Uh, well, why do people call you a pastor? They say, I've received the Holy Spirit, received this calling. Okay, so now you've got, I mean, at least between your own ears, you've got all this responsibility. And then what inevitably happens in pastoral ministry is you fail or get humbled because our Lord's good and that's what he does to us all the time. (laughs) And that can lead you to shipwreck if you don't have a good doctrine of the ministry, if you don't have a sense of the divine call, if you don't have a congregation that understands all of that, understands that you're a sinner called to this office, and if you don't have all that infrastructure in place that we take for granted, it's really easy for a guy to get in that and get mangled and have his faith lost and his salvation lost. So the many, many of those men I pity, and I pity that I can't even imagine being thrown up on a stage and now you've got to teach all these people the word of God and you've basically got nothing but what you yourself have read or done or whatever. Whew. So it's a disaster, yeah. Uh, the little that I know of the Af- Christianity in Africa, and I'm so excited when I read and hear about it, is those that have chosen to come in under the LCMS that, attracted because of the depth of the writing and the teaching from what I have heard limited wise uh, they have they're creating their own seminaries and they they really want to equip the pastors properly is that consistent? oh yeah yeah LCMS is doing great work there are a number of ministries doing great work over in Africa and creating seminaries and yeah it, I'm trying to hold my tongue but when have I ever been able to do that? <laughs> you know, there's, there's this inherent racism in our country and when we look at evangelistic work or missionary work here and when we look at it abroad that you've got to dumb it down and water it down so that they'll understand. I, I mean, frequently it's the very people calling everyone else racist who harbor this racist missionary everything is in air quotes here (laughs) Uh, ideology that we've got to we've got to get it completely watered down and or ape what the what the evangelical megachurches are doing here which is just watering everything down and making everything palatable because that's what attracts people Um, in many respects it's racist in all respects it's foolish and unfaithful because we are to go out, as Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, and proclaim the full counsel of God's word. Of course, apropos of our conversation, in order to pro- proclaim that full counsel of God's word, you kind of have to know it, right? That's the first step. You kind of have to be examined to, so that other people know that you know it, you know that you know it, and then you go out and preach that full counsel, and it's the, it's, you don't pull any punches, and you give everything that Christ gave to his church. You hand all that out, um, regardless of the color of one's skin, or the place on the globe, or the language, or the politics, or the uh, economy, or anything else. Everybody gets the full counsel of God's word. And, Everybody should get well-trained pastors. That's, that's the other th- 
lie that you hear all the time told the, this day and age is like, well, we, well, there's just such a shortage. We're going to accept poorly trained pastors or we're going to accept people who aren't qualified for the pastoral office at all to go out and do the pastoral work because times are desperate and if we don't do this, the church will die. And I mean, if you have an ear for history, these are the mantras of Satan. It's just like the same old song on repeat and a new generation's like, what's that? That's new to me. Um, sounds right. If we don't change, we're going to die. <laughs> it's like he's just got this radio, he's just got this song playing in the supermarket of life for 2,000 straight years. If you don't change, you're going to die. And everyone's like, oh, what's that? This is a new song. And so now we've got to, we create all kinds of innovations and foolishness departing from what the Lord has given, which is a departing, which is a departing from faith. And it's a departing from trust that the Lord gives the full counsel. He wants the full counsel to be given. He wants well-trained clergy. He um, will work through well-trained clergy for the benefit of his people. That he's the Lord of the mission. There's no desperation. The church isn't going to die. Nobody's going to nobody's going to get in. Uh, nobody's going to land in hell because we didn't send Pastor Skinny Jeans out to proclaim the decision theology gospel that he himself invented in his mind and um, went out to preach because he didn't have time to be trained at a seminary. So we got to, you know, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir a bit here, but yeah, we need to maybe stop pulling punches with our brothers and sisters who are thinking these ways and are doing these things and just start calling a spade a spade on some of it. All right, anything else? Okay, we're about, to, uh, we're about to lose our time here, so let's just collect ourselves here with Chemnitz, maybe get a few more lines. Um, if memory serves, we left off at the very bottom of 16. Does that sound right? right? Maybe a couple lines from the bottom. So picking up there, Chemnitz writes, um, and this was that superintendents might be able to follow it, the, the uh, Enchiridion, in their annual visitations. And that was done, or that was not done with this intent, herewith to reject other useful little books of this kind. For in this little booklet, reference is made in many places to the examination of uh, Domine Philip. So that's short for, um, it's just a title. And uh, to other writings. So, in other words, Kevin is saying, look, there's other little booklets that serve these purposes, and I'm not writing this to replace those. He continues, but that for the sake of these new budding churches, one might have a simple form for bringing pastors to the true fundamentals of pure doctrine. Uh, the Philip here, sorry, is Melanchthon. Okay, so that's the point. He's writing the Enchiridion that pastors, and then he's going to get to the point that people also, uh, but that pastors would have just the brief fundamentals of pure doctrine. They'd know what it is they are to believe, teach, and confess, and what their job is, and they're going to be examined so that they are faithful to that task, and the church is unified and whole and of one spirit, and all these glorious things of which we pretty much are not uh, in our own time. Um, So, yeah, could we use a modern Chemnitz to give us a, an examination, get us all on the same page? Yeah, I think we certainly could. 
And with that, let's uh, let's just simply pause there for the week. We'll pick up in this paragraph on page 17 next week, and we'll look at the second point, which is that uh, this book is also given so that the laity might read and know what is being discussed in these examinations, and um, what the salutary doctrine is that they themselves should be hearing in their churches. And that really is going to be the strength of this class is you all will get to hear that and hear that in a 16th century context and apply that to your own experience. I hope I pass. We'll see. And we'll spend a lot of time talking um, next week about the call and the office of the Holy Ministry. And then from there, we go on to the Word and Sacraments, and that's basically the rest of the book, is the Word and Sacraments and the doctrines that are tangential to that. All right, the Lord be with you.